The scripture for today is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Hey, good morning again, everybody. I mentioned last week that uh, like recognizing the connections, and even if there are connections, between the different pastoral charges that James gives can be tricky sometimes. So I want to open, <clears throat> I had Ginny read 1 through 11, even though the sermon itself is on 9 through 11, because I wanted you to hear it. I want to paraphrase that. I want to tell you in, in sort of more familiar terms what I think James is saying. And the reason for that is not to, of course, improve on the Word of God, but to highlight a little bit more clearly the, the glory of the Word of God and the help that is available to all of us in it. So here's, here's once again the New Dave translation. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I know that you have paid a price for following Jesus. I know that on account of your faith in Jesus, you have experienced persecution, severe at times, many of you. I know you have endured many different trials. But here's what you need to know. The hardships that are behind and the hardships that are before you, every one of them, are instruments of God to make you more like Jesus. Believe it or not, In that way, they are a gift. These trials, these troubles, these struggles are a gift from God to you to sanctify you. Your holiness, then, your holiness is far more valuable. Readers, dear readers, hear this. Your holiness is far more valuable than your temporal happiness. And so you must rejoice that God is making you entirely holy, complete, full, even though he is doing it at times at the expense of your comfort. Now, I understand. I get it. It's tricky. It's hard. It's hard to do that. It's even hard to know what that means. It takes a kind of wisdom that you know you don't have to understand and believe and live in light of these things. But take heart. Take heart in the knowledge that God and in God alone, that God alone has the wisdom you need. What's more, not only does he have it, which is awesome in and of itself, but he's eager to give it to anyone who trusts in him enough to seek it from him. And I know that's awesome, but there's more still. He will give it generously and gladheartedly every time you ask him for it. 
He will help you to know how to live in a manner pleasing to him, even in these tumultuous times. But there's something else still. It's text for this morning. There's something else I want you to understand also. Instead of believing and acting on these truths that I just shared, some of you, some of you have been feeling sorry for yourselves. You're in trials. They're hard. I get it. God's doing great things through them. But instead of recognizing that, some of you are feeling sorry for yourselves. And the rest of you are proud in your worldly accomplishments. Instead of counting all of your trials as gain, you're envious of those who have much by the world's standards. And those of you who have much are struggling to boast in those and trust in those things. Do you not yet know that you are now citizens of God's kingdom and everything is different in that kingdom? Those whom the world counts as lowly, God exalts. And those whom the world counts as exalted, God humbles. Listen to me when I tell you about your new citizenship and then trust in God to help you think, feel, and live differently in light of it. And all joy, come what may. I think that's the heart of what James is admonishing and even commanding his readers to understand and do. I think that's the connection between these different charges, these different commands that he gives. I hope it is obvious to you that there's an awful lot in all of that, and and even in just 9 through 11. Distilled, however, boiled down to its, its most potent state. I think this is the heart of our passage for this morning. Are you ready? It is a gift from God to recognize the lowliness that sin has produced in all of us. So to feel convicted of your sin feels yucky in a certain way. But it is a gift from God to recognize the lowliness that sin has produced in all of us. Because it is only in recognizing the lowliness, or, or to say it a little differently, because it is only the lowly who look to God for the mercy and grace that we so desperately need. Until you know you're lowly, you'll never turn to God to be lifted up. When we come to God in our desperate need, then, having received his gift of recognizing our lowliness, he will forgive us, he will free us, and he will lift us up as his royal sons and daughters. And in that gracious exaltation, we must boast grace. That's the heart of this. I'm going to say that one more time, and then I'm going to pray. It's sort of a lot of words, but here's the heart of this passage. It is a gift from God to recognize the lowliness that sin has produced in all of us. Why is that a gift? It's a gift because it is only the lowly who look to God for the mercy and grace that we all need. But when we come to God in our desperate need, he will forgive us, free us, and lift us up as his royal sons and daughters. And in that gracious exaltation, that gracious lifting up, we must boast. Let's pray. God, we're, we're in another passage that is really counterintuitive. We're in another passage that says is exactly the opposite of what we normally believe in the way we normally live. I pray that through this command, through this direct but gentle confrontation, we would see our, our sin, our misplaced trust, our misplaced affection 
and recalibrate. By your grace, would we, would we, rather than trying to conform you into our image and your word into our will, would we surrender to your word and your wisdom and your will and your nature? Would you, would you grant us, please, by your grace, the ability to see that this is not just right but glorious beyond measure, better than every alternative? Would you help us to see that? We, we're creatures of comfort. Our, our flesh and the evil one tempt us constantly towards comfort and away from holiness. God, would you help us to understand that the very thing we're seeking in worldly comfort is only available through trials. It is not going to be for us yet in this life. Would you help us to see the folly of chasing comfort apart from righteousness? Joy apart from you. Help us to see that. And therefore, help us to see the folly of our normal response to the difficulties of life, to experiencing lowliness. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these few verses, James addresses two types of readers, those that are lowly and those that are lofty. And for both, his aim was to correct certain lies that they had fallen into, that they had come to believe about the nature of the respective positions, the lowliness and the loftiness. Let's first consider his charge to the lowly. There's a, again, there's a flow to this. And I'm going to tell you each of the clauses. If you have your, if you have an outline, you can see them right on that. But here's, here's, I think, where James is going. Here's the headlines. Here's the taglines. The lowliness of James's readers came from following Jesus. James prescribes an unworldly response to that lowliness. Physical lowliness, the physical lowliness that they were experiencing, reveals a a deeper and more significant lowliness, a spiritual lowliness. Realizing then our spiritual lowliness, which often comes through the physical lowliness, leads us to God. When our lowliness leads us to God, it is then that we are exalted, and it is right to boast in that God-given exaltation. That's where James is going. Let's... Let's talk about each of those. Let's unpack each of those a little bit. The lowliness of James's readers came from following Jesus. Our, our passage opens with a command to, see who it's addressed to? Verse 9, the lowly brother. We'll come to the content of the command in just a minute, but first notice who it was addressed to, namely a group of Christians who were, had found themselves to be in hard places. The lowliness that it refers to that they were in was primarily the product of the persecution that they were experiencing on account of their faith in Jesus. At that time, to put your hope in Jesus was to be persecuted. Many had been disowned by their families, driven from their homes and homelands. They had lost their livelihoods, their ability to work and make money to provide for themselves and their families. They were hated by many. They were constant, under constant pressure by religious leaders. And all of these things, and more, were a part of the trials that James mentioned in verses 2 through 4. And most were the direct result of following Jesus. When James wrote these words, get this, Grace, get this. We don't get a lot of this. We're getting a little bit more of this in our culture. 
But when James wrote these words, many of his readers would have been poor and destitute because of their hope in Jesus. To look at many of them would have known, it would have been to know that they were not people of worldly importance, but worldly outcasts. Certainly many in the world looked at him exactly like that. Now here's the question James was trying to drive. The question that he was trying to make sure they were asking and and the question that James himself was addressing was how they looked at themselves. They, they were in a lowly state. Life had gotten much harder for them for following Jesus. The world looked at them as if they were nothing. And the question was, how did they understand themselves? How did they view their situation? Some of them evidently agreed with the world's assessment, or at least they were unsure which is why James needed to address the situation head on. So what exactly did James command this lowly bunch? What advice would you give to them, this group of people who had been persecuted to the point of being brought to a lowly condition? We can't help but to remember back to verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when? Remember, okay, what's next? Well, here's, here's what... James says, let the lowly brother, what, what, would you, what would you say? Picture somebody that's lowly. Let them what? What advice would you give? Let them pray for mercy. That, that would be good, right? Let them join a local church that would be able to take care of them. You, you know, we read in Acts at the beginning, they sold all that they have and gave to each as they had need. That would be good advice. But what does James command them? And would it be as counterintuitive as his his earlier advice to those who were enduring trials? Yes. (laughs) Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The first thing for us to notice here, of course, is that as with trials, James describes lowliness in exactly the opposite terms that we would expect. In the usual sense, people who are considered lowly are disparaged not exalted. Likewise, people who are lowly tend to feel ashamed, not boastful. The unworldly nature of the response commanded by James should be quickly apparent to all of us. In fact, you're not going to be able to appreciate anything else he says until you get that this is weird. This is not normal for this world. This is not the logic that we operate under. I'm going to step away from this for one second, which is usually dangerous, but I think it's important. When we hear this, right away we know this is not how we function. This is not normally how we respond to lowliness. We, we don't boast in our exaltation. And I'm going to try to help you to see that in just a minute. But here's what I, I really want you to understand as well, Grace. Increasingly, the will and word of God is becoming just like that to the people around us. When it deals with things like marriage and, and family and life and dignity and justice, increasingly the world hears the message that we say, and just like this sounds weird to us, that sounds completely foreign to them. So, so let us pray. Let us hold fast to the word of God. Let us make sure we press deeply into it and that our way of seeing the world isn't just our common sense. And it certainly isn't the world's common sense, but it is the word of God. As weird as it might sound, let the word of God be that which shapes our view 
of all that we experience. Okay, so with that in mind, this is weird. (laughs) It sounds weird to us, but it's right and good and true, and we need to conform ourselves to it rather than it to us. So I want to help you. I want you to... I want you to experience a little bit right now what you experience normally in the world to help you appreciate this more fully. So again, I'm going to give you, I'm going to ask you to picture a few things. Picture someone who was once wealthy and powerful. Just try to draw somebody to mind, but is now poor and destitute, having been convicted of some scandalous business practice. So everything seemed to be going in their favor by the world's standards. They could have what they wanted. They were rich. They were powerful. And then they did something to lose all of it. What do you think? What comes to your mind? They were in a lofty position and then through whatever, they became in a very lowly position. What do you think? No one would naturally think of that person as exalted any longer. And anyone who heard them boast, you would think you're nuts. Like, what, what are you talking about? You, you might have been up here, but now you're not. Let me frame it a little bit differently. We've got to be honest. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you see someone on the street, dirty and homeless and disheveled? Kids, maybe at school or, or maybe in your neighborhood or something like that. You know someone that just has real trouble making friends because of some quirk in their personality. How do you view them? Do you think of these people, the person on the street or the kid in school that has trouble making friends? Do you, do you view them as exalted? Is that what comes to your mind? Wow, I wish I could be like them. That is amazing. Is that what comes to your mind? Are you envious of their position? If they were to brag about where they were, would that make sense to you or would it seem strange? Let's, let's get a little closer to the text. Even more to the point, how do you feel when your neighbors or coworkers look down on you for some aspect of your faith in Jesus? What happens in your head and your heart when you take some stand on God's design for the family, marriage, you're treated like a hateful bigot? What does it do to your sense of value when the kids in your neighborhood don't want to play with you because you don't talk like them or or won't do some of the things that they want to do? How does it make you feel when you share the gospel in love with an unbeliever and they look at you like you're a total fool? That's what James's readers were faced with and more. So let's be honest. Generally, when we encounter someone lowly, we're usually skeptical and standoffish. That's our natural response, unfortunately, oftentimes. And when we're treated lowly, or when we're in a place of lowliness, if we're being honest, we're usually discouraged and disheartened. But James, once again, wants to help his readers recalibrate. Their, their measuring system is off. He wants them to recalibrate their value system to make it more in line with God's. James's audience had made... One value misjudgment when it came to the trials they were enduring, and another when it came to the lowliness that those trials produced in them in the eyes of others, and maybe even themselves. Many of James's readers found themselves in uncomfortable conditions and were not processing them the way God would have them in light of the gospel. And most of the rest, it seems, were struggling to think in godly terms about the wealth that remained with them. 
In James's first command in our passage for this morning, he was attempting to correct their thinking in order to help them find joy in Christ and give glory to God in their hardships, even in their resulting lowliness. That leads to the third main heading. But how does this work? <laughs> okay, so we've established that they're in a lowly spot because of their faith in Jesus. And we've established that James's command to them in that is very counterintuitive, boast in the exaltation that that represents. But how does that work? What, what was James's rationale? What was his thinking? We think our rationale is, I love comfort, and therefore to be in a lowly spot is to be removed from comfort. That stinks. <laughs> That's our rationale. James says, do it differently. What's his rationale? What does he mean? Why should his readers boast in their lowliness? And in what sense did it mean that they were exalted? To answer those questions begins, or the answer to those questions begins with the fact that God often uses physical lowliness in the world's eyes, lowliness in the world's eyes, to reveal a far more significant spiritual lowliness. Spiritual lowliness is far deeper and far more serious and far more significant. So James wanted his readers to understand that every earthly hardship they encountered was designed by God to remind them of the spiritual lowliness that he had rescued them from. Grace is the key here. Whether we recognize it or not, whether you know this or not, we are all spiritually lowly. For reasons we'll come to shortly, it is absolutely critical that we recognize this. Let me ask you a question, though. If that's true, why don't we all recognize this? If we can feel this physical lowliness, usually really quickly, but there's a deeper, more significant spiritual lowliness, why don't we feel that even more deeply and more significantly? The problem, as always, is one of perspective. Our problem with our perspective is that it's horizontal (laughs) instead of vertical. When we compare ourselves to others, it can go either way. Grace, everyone, every single person has someone above and below them according to the world's standards. You are more exalted than some and more lowly than others. Every low-income housing development has someone who obviously has more going for them than the rest of the people, even as every country club has someone that everyone knows is barely able to maintain their membership. And so when we compare ourselves on the horizontal level with other people, it's not always clear where it's not always clear where we stand. But Grace, that is not the measuring stick that James is giving to his readers. That is not the measuring stick that God has given to us. When we measure ourselves against the real measuring stick, as James was trying to help his readers do, it is impossible to be confused. It's impossible. Grace, the only measuring stick that matters is God himself. And to have even the most childlike understanding of the true nature of God is to know that you are wrecked is to know that you are lowly beyond anything you could have imagined. Maybe there's no clearer picture of this than the famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read the God, God is, God's description of himself, uh, revealing himself to Isaiah. And I want you to ask yourself, is this the God you believe in? <laughs> is this your God? Is this your measuring stick when you consider whether you're lowly or lofty? 
He says, as I'm sure many of you have read many times, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and two, or with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, the, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then the foundations of the temp, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Who could stand before this God and feel exalted? <laughs> There's some prideful people in this room. I've met you. I'm among you. <laughs> but who could stand before that God and feel exalted? Who could be proud? Who would think of boasting of their accomplishments? God, I, I took this, the gifts that you have given me and I did one one hundred billionth of what you do in your mind in one half of a second. How awesome am I? Who would think of boasting of their accomplishments in the presence of this God? Who would think to complain about whatever inconvenience you faced standing before a God who makes thresholds shake? Grace, when this is your understanding of God, when you see God as he truly is, which is a gift from God, Isaiah's response to all of this then makes total sense. This is the spiritual lowliness that is on all of us, whether we see it or not. Woe is me, for I am lost, Isaiah said. For I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Perhaps for the first time, Isaiah was able to measure himself against the only thing that we ought to measure ourselves against. And what was the result? Compared to God, he knew that along with all mankind, he was lowly beyond measure. And the key, once again, is that it is often through the feeling of physical lowliness, which is why Jesus spent so much time with those who knew they were sick, (laughs) the lowly in the eyes of the world. The key, once again, is that it is often through feeling the physical and emotional lowliness caused by the hardships in this life, often persecution for our faith in Christ, that awakens us to the deeper and more significant spiritual lowliness that is common to us all. Okay, well, how does that help? (laughs) Okay, I believe you, Pastor Dave, James got this kind of thought process, but what good does that do? That just sounds bad. Uh, Now I know I'm wrecked. I knew I was not awesome, maybe, but now I know I'm just totally wrecked. How does that help? And is there any sense in which that that makes me exalted? That sounds worse. (laughs) That sounds like I'm lower, not higher. Well, that leads to the next point. Realizing our spiritual lowliness leads us to God. To catch a glimpse of God as he truly is, is to be brought to a place of unparalleled lowliness. It is in that place of unparalleled lowliness that our need for God becomes unmistakably clear. And our realization of our need for God is what causes us to turn to God for mercy and grace. It is only because Isaiah saw himself, not compared to his his friends and family, but compared to God himself, It is only because he saw himself in light of the glory of God that he recognized his profound 
ruining spiritual lowliness and then cried out to God in desperation and then experienced God's cleansing work when the seraphim touched a coal from the fire to him. Behold, Isaiah said, or behold, the seraphim said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is why every good gospel presentation begins with a biblical description of God. Not a watered-down, domesticated, safe God, lowercase g God, but the one true God who makes temples shake and oceans roar and stars burn at unfathomable temperatures. We cannot even begin to grasp the amazingness of grace, the good news of the gospel, until we see ourselves in light of the terrible and awesome holiness of God. James was writing to Christians who had already come to know their spiritual lowliness. They had already cried out to God for mercy and received it. And yet, here's the point, evidently they failed to see the connection between their earthly lowliness and the amazing grace of God that was upon them that washed and overwhelmed all of that. And that leads to the next link in James's chain of reasoning. How does recognizing all of this cause us to be exalted and then boast in that exaltation? When our lowliness leads us to God, and only when our lowliness leads us to God, are we exalted. There are two ways in which James wants his readers to understand this. First, as we just saw, coming to know our spiritual lowliness leads us to turn to God for mercy and grace, which he gives freely to all who come in faith. And again, the grace and mercy of God is such that he forgives us. This is our, remember our our assurance of pardon from this morning. He forgives us and frees us and then makes us his children. Through Jesus, he takes away our spiritual lowliness and exalts us as co-heirs in the kingdom of God. Walking in this knowledge changes everything, Grace. What worldly struggle could compare to the glory of being in the royal family of God? How could any earthly situation bring us low when God has brought us up that high? James wanted his readers to understand and hold on to the spiritual exaltation as a means of counting their physical lowliness as all joy, because that's an arrow pointing to the grace of God. That's the first way in which the lowly are exalted. Here's the second. The second way the lowly are exalted is when they're brought low on account of their faith in Christ, as James's readers had been. To forsake a piece of worldly, to forsake a place of worldly prominence for obedience to Jesus is seen as the highest loftiness from God. Grace, James's readers had lost sight of the fact that to suffer for the name of Jesus is to be highly exalted by the one, the only one, and in the only way that matters. The apostles got this, having been arrested for their faith, having been restrained and then released. Here's what they said. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They understood what James was trying to teach his readers, that in their suffering, in their lowliness, they were lifted up. Jim Elliott, in responding to the concerns, people came to him and said, if you go to this people, you will be be lowly. You will have a lowly existence. And to them, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He knew the exaltation that belonged to all who gladly give their lives in obedience to Jesus. 
Missionary John Patton was determined to bring the gospel to a cannibal tribe, no matter what lowliness it might lead to. When warned that he might be eaten, because, you know, that's what cannibals do, he replied to the man who warned him, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day of in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. This is the heart James wanted his readers to have in light of the fact that they were exalted, having been raised from spiritual lowliness through faith in Christ. And all of this together means that there, there ought to be some grace. This is, this is where the plane lands a bit in our heart. There ought to be some increasing measure of exalted lowliness in every one of us, in every faithful follower of Jesus. In a world like ours, one that finds God ever more distasteful, if you are not experiencing, if we are not experiencing some measure of lowliness resulting from persecution, the kind that James's readers were experiencing, it's probably an indication that you're not following Jesus very closely. When is the last time that you were made to feel lowly for speaking the truth in love, or for fighting for the cause of the vulnerable, or for simply proclaiming the name of Christ to a world that hates him? Rightly read, all of this compels us to ask ourselves, are we experiencing an appropriate kind of worldly lowliness for our faith in Christ? To align with Christ, to truly align with him in this world, is to be an enemy of this world, to be lowly in the eyes of this world. If not, we're not walking in obedience and therein missing out on the kind of exaltation God has for us. James's readers did have that kind of lowliness, but had forgotten that it was their highest honor. Rather than wallow in their affliction then, James commanded them to boast in their exaltation. Finally then, James told his readers that they were not to keep the good news of this exalted lowliness. That's a good phrase. Remember that, Grace. Exalted lowliness. That they were not to keep the good news of their exalted lowliness to themselves. Instead, they were to boast of it. To publicly delight in its goodness. We see it throughout the New Testament and especially in Paul. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness, he says in 2 Corinthians. But, it, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest in me. Galatians 6, but, at, but far, for, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Once again, James flipped the world's wisdom upside down, revealed this to his readers, and gave them another chance to turn their mourning into public joy. And this, and in this grace, James helps us to recalibrate our value system as well, and especially the value we place on trials and persecution and the lowliness that comes from them. Do not despise this grace of God. As we heard before, grace is worst 
is infinitely greater than the world's best. Well, to know that you are lowly is a gift from God. Whenever it causes you to turn to God, that he might lift you up. And the lowliness produced by faithfulness to Jesus is a special kind of exalted condition. But what about being in a lofty place? What if, even though you're faithful to Christ and living for him for at least a season, you have much? James flips that on its head as well in the last two verses. And the rich, and let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Most of the the most of the charge here, the heart of the charge anyway, is the same as to the lowly. So there isn't a lot more to be said, but there are two things I want to say. His response, his command to the rich, to the lofty, is every bit as shocking and unworldly as the charge to the poor. And second, the wealth the world counts is so significant, is always fleeting, and therefore entirely powerless to bear the weight of our hope. Let me just say a quick word about each of those two things. We're not rightly reading this if we're not at least a little... Shocked by it. Once again, ask yourself whether this is how you truly see the world. And if not, give thanks to God for this opportunity to change. What do you think when someone of worldly prominence comes into the room? Whoever that might be. What would you, what would be your first thought? Kids especially. Think about this for a minute. Picture your, the, the musician that you like the most or the athlete that you're most impressed by. What would your first thought be if a famous athlete or musician showed up at your house? They just came to your house. You didn't didn't even know they were coming. They showed up. They said, hey, let's hang out. What would your first thought be? What would your reaction be? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. What would your reaction be if a billionaire started coming to Grace Church? How would you treat them? Would it be the same as everyone else? A little different. Let me frame it a little differently. How would you feel if you got a huge promotion at work? or somehow came into millions of dollars through an unexpected inheritance, would you feel feel humiliated? Would you feel humiliated if those things took place, or would you feel exalted? Would you feel more lowly or more puffed up? James said that those in lofty or rich places ought to boast in their humiliation, even though that's not what many or maybe any of us would do by nature. It is important, therefore, that we get a grasp his a grasp on his reasoning. It's counterintuitive in almost every way. So what's under this? Real quickly. The rich ought to boast in their humiliation because riches always come to an end. Always. Whether through mismanagement, unforeseen circumstances, God's judgment, or death. Worldly riches, James argues, are never permanent. And so it is always foolish to place our hope in them or to be overly impressed by them. In this way, James said, worldly wealth is like flowers and grass, beautiful and and in some ways desirable for a time, but always eventually fading and perishing. And in those ways, unworthy, it is unworthy of our esteem. So there's a good deal of debate, and I won't bore you with it, about whether James is referring to a rich 
rich brother or a rich Christian or rich unbelievers when he says this? A lot of it's true for both either way, but it seems most likely to me that he was writing to rich Christians and that he meant there to be a parallel between verse 9 and verses 10 through 11. He wants Christians who maintain wealth in spite of their faithfulness to Christ to boast in their humiliation. That is, he commanded his Christian readers not to celebrate the wealth that the world loves so much. He commanded them not to celebrate the fact that they had escaped the persecution that many of their brothers and sisters were enduring. Instead, he commands his lofty readers to celebrate or boast in God's gift of humility, the humility that caused them even to recognize their need for a savior in spite of the blinding effect that worldly wealth and esteem usually have. Boast, boast, brother, in the kindness of God that brought humility in a place that most people don't find it. Boast in your God-given realization that all the things the world counts so precious are like a flower or grass that are so pretty to look at for a season, only to wither and die when the sun scorches or the, cor- or the cold kills. Boast in the mercy of God that has filled you with the knowledge that riches can never sustain you through life's true trials. Grace, as we sang two weeks ago, many, may we obey James's command and entirely forsake seeking our joy and placing our hope in what will be destroyed. Whatever amount of wealth God has given you will soon become valueless. I'm not talking about inflation here. I'm talking about the fact that the currency of heaven is entirely different. That your wealth on earth has no value in heaven. Do not boast in it then. Do not trust in it. Do not use it to build up comforts on earth, but instead give it generously to those in physical and spiritual need. And then boast in the fact that God has opened your eyes to the spiritual lowliness that caused you to turn to Jesus and become a child of God. So here's the conclusion. The heart of this passage is that the world's understanding of lowliness and loftiness are wrong, and that James's Christian readers ought to forsake it, the world's logic, lest they continue to be robbed of the joy and sanctification God meant them to have in their trials. Therefore, James wrote to help them recalibrate and to help you and I recalibrate. So I want to close with the words of James Manton. He, he wrote, he wrote what I'm about to share, this simple, these simple words, back in the 1600s. He said that for those in Christ, for all of the children of God, James is helping us to see this. Poverty is promotion. Servants are freedmen. We are poor in Christ, yet rich. Humbled and yet exalted. Shut out of the world and yet admitted into the company of the saints and the angels. Slighted yet dear to God, the world's dirt, but God's jewels. In Christ, therefore, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation.